Given the vastness of beliefs of Hinduism, and the diversity of ways of putting those beliefs into practice, and the fact that depending on who you ask, and the context in which you ask it, Hinduism is either a religion, or a way of life and culture, or both. Given all those things, ask any Hindu the question, who is a Hindu, and you are likely to get as many answers as the number of people you ask. Here's a taste of that, quoting from the book, What is Hinduism?, written by the monks at the Kwai Adhanam in Hawaii. Swami Vivekananda said in the late 19th century, using the word Vedantists as a stand-in for Hindu, quote, All Vedantists believe in God. Vedantists also believe the Vedas to be the revealed word of God. Another common ground of belief is that of the creation in cycles, that the whole of creation appears and disappears, end quote. Dr. S. Radhakrishnan, writer, philosopher, and president of India from 1962 to 1967, says a Hindu is someone who, and I'm abbreviating a bit here, quote, recognizes one supreme spirit, though different names are given to it, and believes that God is in the world, though not as the world. There's no dualism of the natural and the supernatural. Evil, error, and ugliness are not ultimate. The law of karma tells us that the individual life is not a term, but a series. Every type has its own nature, which should be followed. End quote. Also in the mid-1960s, the Vishva Hindu Parishad defined a Hindu very broadly as, quote, a person believing in, following, or respecting the eternal values of life, ethical and spiritual, which have sprung up in India and includes any person calling himself a Hindu. As for a legal definition, the Indian Supreme Court in 1966 said and reaffirmed three decades later that Hindus have, quote, one, acceptance of the Vedas with reverence as the highest authority in religious and philosophical matters, two, a spirit of tolerance and willingness to understand and appreciate the opponent's point of view based on the realization that truth is many-sided, three, acceptance of great world rhythm, vast periods of creation, maintenance, and dissolution follow each other in endless succession. Four, acceptance by all systems of Hindu philosophy of the belief in rebirth and pre-existence. Five, recognition of the fact the means or ways to salvation are many. Six, realization of the truth that numbers of gods to be worshipped may be large, yet there being Hindus who do not believe in the worshipping of idols. Seven, Unlike other religions or religious creeds, Hindu religion not being tied down to any definite set of philosophical concepts as such. If you want to tune out now, you have a definition. Four definitions, in fact. Definitions that overlap in some ways and yet are distinct in others. If you want, get on with your day having learned a little nugget of information. But I highly encourage you to stay with me as there's a good deal more to discuss on this topic, including the questions of having to be born a Hindu or not, some stories of people who've done just this, including myself. Plus, can you call yourself a Hindu and still identify with some other religion? Let's find out. I'm Matt McDermott, and this is all about Hinduism, episode three, Who is a Hindu? Okay then. Having got the episode title question out of the way, let's move on. Do you have to be born into Hinduism, into a family identifying as Hindu, to be a Hindu? The fact is, both historically and in contemporary Hindu culture, there are many examples of individuals and communities who have come to identify as Hindu 
embracing some aspect of the definitions of Hindu identity that we began the episode with. We have the entire island of Bali to prove that today. The island of Java and the very much non-Indian people living there was Hindu for many years too before Buddhism rose to prominence and then both were superseded there by Islam. Cambodians were Hindu before Buddhism was adopted. Ditto communities in Vietnam. The difference, spiritually speaking, between the beliefs of some Hindu sects and Buddhism is very slight. Today in Nepal, there's practical overlap between Hinduism and Buddhism, plus the Bon religion as well. Though the vast majority of Hindus are born into the tradition, and Hinduism generally doesn't seek converts per se, different lineages have different ways of coming into Hinduism, ranging from simply asserting Hindu identity to formal naming ceremonies, essentially doing a ceremony that would ordinarily be done for children to establish the name, but doing it for an adult. Others just require affirmative statements of belief and identity. I chose not to do either of those, though I've considered it over the years. For me personally, it somehow seemed unnecessary, as this is the only way I can remember thinking, believing, in any sincerity. At the same time, many people in the West today may follow a Hindu guru or a teacher spreading Hindu beliefs but don't identify as being a Hindu, even though they practice yoga, believe in karma, take inspiration from the Upanishads, are vegetarian, and otherwise tick all the boxes in, say, the Indian Supreme Court definition of Hindu identity. For me, for many years, this was me. I developed Hindu metaphysical beliefs and many Hindu practices. This came about after first being exposed to Hinduism through my love of poetry and writing of the Beat Generation, beginning to study and practice yoga after being given a copy of Vishnu Devananda's 1960 book, The Complete Illustrated Book of Yoga, and thoroughly voraciously reading whatever books on Hinduism I could get my hands on, including, perhaps most influentially, the books Loving Ganesha and the Master Course series of books by Shivaya Subramunyaswamy. Plus, being exposed to the Hare Krishna movement and vegetarianism through the hardcore music scene, Krishna core bands like Shelter, and how that intersected with the skateboard scene of the early 1990s in New England and New York. Despite all this, I would say, if pressed, that I was spiritual but not religious, or that I don't identify with any religion, but my beliefs are essentially Hindu. Then, one day, I realized there was value in standing up and saying, of the many ways a person can identify, of the many groups I proudly identify with, one of those is being a Hindu. So, if you don't have to be born a Hindu, can you identify as a Hindu and still identify as another faith? Personally, I think the differences in belief and philosophy between Hinduism and the other Indic traditions are entirely reconcilable. They are differences of perspective or emphasis. And as I said before, in some places, such as Nepal or Bali, when it comes to practice, the traditions overlap. Hindu beliefs and those of other non-Abrahamic faiths, such as Shinto, Taoism, or some native traditions across the globe, can coexist, even if these are all different philosophies and belief systems. The metaphysical differences between Hinduism and the Abrahamic faiths, though, beyond very surface-level similarities in day-to-day -day ethics that get played up in memes and interfaith discussions, such as love your neighbor as yourself, are deep. And I think they may be ultimately unbridgeable, at least for the non-mystic or non-Gnostic varieties of these traditions. At the same time, I would be happy to be proven wrong on that point. Before we close out this episode... I wanted to share a segment of a webinar HAF did at the end of 2020 with two people who are born 
in a Catholic family and a Muslim family, and came to Hinduism later in life. What you're about to hear is Fred Stella and Drishti May talking about their first encounters with Hinduism, how their families reacted to this, basically their entree into the Hindu world. What was it like for you, Fred? How, 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 what was your first encounter or, or your first impression of Hinduism? The first one that I remember, and it's possible that there was something that happened beforehand. Uh, maybe it was studying geography in the fourth grade, but I don't remember that. What I remember, and honestly, this sounds rather cliche for people in my generation, but it was when the Beatles went to India, to Rishikesh, uh, to take a months-long retreat at the Maharishi's ashram. For people who were not alive then or people who were not in this country at, the, at that time, it was a profound uh, cultural shift. All of a sudden, people who'd never heard about Hindu Dharma uh, were, were intrigued. And I was about uh, 11, 12 years old when that happened. And something just struck me. It was, it, it was something that I can't explain. I just remember that that event ignited something in me that encouraged me to think, someday I'm going to be doing something like that. So, so tell me about your first encounter with Hinduism, Drishti, um, your first positive first-hand experience. Was it studying a book? Was it being introduced to someone who might be a teacher? So my very first, um, and, and this, this memory, I think came to me a few days ago, and it's a, it's a little bit fuzzy, but it's from around the age of about five years old. And I was with a family friend who was looking after me for the day. Um, and I was spending time with, with her and her son. And she said, okay, now, Vita, we're going to go to the mandir. And my heart stopped. And my heart stopped because I knew that I wasn't allowed to do that. And I fumbled with my words and I, I tried to tell her that actually I couldn't go. I'd wait in the car. You know, I, I'd be fine on my own. She, she should go without me. And it was quite a scary experience getting to that point. And she, you know, she laughed it off and she said, don't worry, Vita, you'll be fine. We're only going to go in for a few minutes. Uh, we'll, say, we'll say a little prayer and then we'll be on our way. And I must have, I don't remember exactly, but I must have mumbled something about not telling my mother as we entered the mandir, to, to which she must have laughed. But as we got there, um, it, was, it, was, it was not necessarily densely populated, not like how I experienced the mosque. You know, there was no, there was no loud noise. There wasn't a sermon going on as such. It was quite quiet, quite peaceful. And we came to the front and she then said to me, okay, Bitta, you can just pray however you want, whatever you want to do. If you want to be quiet, if you want to make a wish, go for it. I remember sitting there, probably like a halfway house between folding my hands together and having my palms out. And I remember being there as this five-year-old, begging for forgiveness for being in this place. Begging for forgiveness for being in front of idols because I knew it was wrong and saying, Oh Allah, I am praying to you. I know I'm not meant to be here, but it's circumstance. I, I'm just here. I had no choice. And really, really quivering while this. And at the same time, obviously keeping an eye out to know when I could leave and when when this um, family friend was leaving. And 
when we were ready to leave, we left. There was, you know, it was at that moment that we were going to the exit that I thought, oh, this is truly different. No one corrected how I sat. No one told me how to pray. Um, when I pray namaz, you know, someone might be there correcting the posture of my toes or telling me that I'm not facing exactly in the right direction. None of that happened. It was so easy and no one really cared about how I did my prayer. And as we left, uh, there was an older gentleman that just gave us uh, a little sweet. And again, it was just such a positive experience and such a contrast, I guess, to what I was used to going to the mosque on a regular basis. So that would be my very first memory that I can recall. That's a, a quite a beautiful one. Uh, what happened with me is I'm taking this world religions course. And yeah. as I say, it, it spurred me to learn more. The only really significant expression of the Dharma in Detroit, Michigan, where all of this is taking place in 1970, the only real place uh, is uh, ISKCON. They already had a temple up. And of course, especially at that time, they uh, they had a real big publicity machine. They would have Sankirtan on the main drag downtown and they would uh, they would gather a lot of interest. And so I went to their uh, Sunday feast. Uh, well, there, there's a feast after, uh, of course, they have Bhajan, they have Kirtan, uh, they have a discourse on the Gita and all of that. And I just remember how easily I fell into everything that that I didn't have the same issue that you did in terms of, oh, I'm in this foreign place and it's a sin. And of course, the good thing about growing up, growing up Catholic as opposed to Protestant is that we have statuary, you know, uh, and, and so having a statue of Krishna or uh, a statue of Lord Chaitanya uh, on an altar was no big deal for me because I grew up with statues of Jesus and Mary and Joseph and, and a pantheon of saints. So there, there was no uh, real issue for me there. And during the Gita discourse, it just resonated with me in, in such, a, such a tremendous way. And then in 1970, uh, there really weren't a lot of options for uh, non-Indians to have Indian food. I mean, there just weren't very many Indians in Detroit at that time. And so afterwards, the Sunday feast, I was uh, eating food that I'd never eaten before in my life. And uh, if, if the Gita discourse didn't get me, the, <laughs> the prashadam certainly did. I've often said that if I ever record a commercial for Hinduism, the tagline would be Hinduism, come for enlightenment, but stay for dinner. <laughs> so, so I never joined ISKCON, uh, but they did provide for me a foundation, some some place to start. And it was uh, a remarkable, uh, a remarkable journey that started from there. Uh, Dristi, real quick, uh, tell us about your uh, how you separated from Islam? And was that a challenge in your community and your family, etc.? Sure. So one of the key ideas that I was exposed to um, quite early on was that Islam is the truth. And if you're born into the truth, how blessed are you? You started at the right place. There are so many people that are born outside of Islam and they may never know what Islam is. They may never find the right path. And that was deeply disturbing because if God is meant to be this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving being, why would he do that? 
Why would he allow for this difference to occur? And then at the same time, if Islam really is the truth, I was convinced that I should be able to explore everything and then still return back to Islam and know that it is true. You know, if it's true, it should stand that test. And around the age of 11, so I think not too dissimilar to you, Fred, because I think you started inquiring in your early teens as well. Uh, around the age of 11, I started asking these questions a bit more pronounced. I started asking, why am I not allowed to go and experience Buddhism? Why can I not go experience Christianity? Why can I not know what it means to be Hindu? And see Islam from that perspective, but also see truth from that perspective. And then decide for myself, what is truth? Why is that not allowed? Or can I do that? You know, is it permissible? Will I be forgiven for going out of the fold for a few years, but then, you know, coming back with such a strong faith? And um, I consulted someone, so a Maulana, so someone who'd done their equivalent of a master's and a PhD in Islam, who studied in Iran. And the response I got back was quite stern, quite firm, about bringing shame upon the family, about, you know, almost being devil-like, like being influenced by the wrong ideas and being very careful about who I shared those questions with. That was quite firm. And I was 11. Uh, so firm so that uh, within a few months, my mother sent me off without either of my parents to Iran for a month to learn more about Islam because she was so worried I turned out to be a terrible Muslim. And having had those experiences, having you know gone to Iran to learn more about Islam, coming back, I still could not be convinced that this was true. Why is it that there was such a difference for you know for, for Muslims and non-Muslims? Why was it that there were so many rules? You know, let's not kid ourselves. Islam is intense. Why were there so many rules for women? Where was equality? There were there were so many questions around? Am I racist? How can I discriminate like this? How can I be phobic against other religions? How is this fair? What, you know, how can I be part of this world and you know, hold these views? And so these questions kept fermenting. The desire to become vegetarian, to explore philosophy, I guess, grew and grew and grew to the point where I gained the confidence to say that I'm leaving Islam. And that was around the age of 17, where I said, it is enough is enough. And you know, I, I, I've had my highs, I've had my lows. Islam's not the answer for me. And so I actually started off slightly differently in that I stayed in that agnostic slash atheistic fold for quite a while before I then started exploring Hindu dharma uh, a few years later. That is, a, that is a challenge in life that so many people have. I think I was a bit more fortunate. Admittedly, when my parents found out at the age of 15 that I was exploring, uh, they were a bit concerned. Uh, I remember something my mother said, it stuck with me all these years. She reminded me of a cousin of mine who was quite a bit older. He was probably 20 years older than I. And he had gone to the college that I would end up at, the University of Detroit, which is Catholic. It's, it's run by the Society of Jesus, which is a highly intellectual order. And she remembers that my cousin took a philosophy class there. And many of the philosophy classes were taught by non-Catholics and uh, some by people who were probably uh, atheists. And she remembers that it got my cousin questioning, like it was a bad thing, similar to, to what you were told. Like, oh, you know, you, 
you got to be careful what you read because you might question something. And at the age of 15, I, I knew that that was not the attitude to have. And so I completely dismissed it. And, and so when I was busted uh, for uh, uh, exploring uh, Hindu dharma, I just went underground. I just I just did it behind their back. <laughs> and I never repented. I don't know what, what karma I may have accumulated for uh, uh, disobeying my parents like that, but I didn't care. <laughs> Next time on All About Hinduism, we'll start going a bit deeper, discussing the main spiritual texts of Hinduism. Hope you'll join us. made it to the end of this episode of All About Hinduism. The show is produced, written, and edited by me, Matt McDermott. All About Hinduism's academic advisor is Dr. Shreen Bala. Sean Mallard is the associate producer. Suhag Shukla reviews each script, making all sorts of helpful notes and suggestions. Before you go, leave us a nice five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Please also subscribe or follow us so you can get all the new episodes the moment they're released. Also, you can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at HinduAmerican.org slash donate. That's it for now. Mm-hmm.